It's a beautiful song and it's a beautiful time we're coming into right now. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. I was also thinking of that song. I heard the bells on Christmas Day and thinking about some of the lyrics there. I thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And you know, if you're in town or uh, probably in the mail, you're getting cards, Christmas cards, Christmas greetings, and it's, it's good, it's enjoyable. It's especially good when you think of, of the beauty of, of Christ. But then there's this next verse, and in despair I bowed my head. And this was written pre-Civil War, just pre-Civil War. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And uh, I think we could really um, well associate um, with this, with this sentiment. I heard Tommy shared uh, that thought this morning and how he looks forward to the kingdom of Christ. That's where he wants to be. And I believe that's, that's uh, where we all want to be when we look at surrounding uh, events. But then it says, Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, good will toward men. And uh, so that's, that's kind of my thought this morning is where we at. And how do we process all that's going on around us? Um, and so I've, I've titled the message The Kingdom of Jesus because I believe that's why we're here this morning is because we're part of that kingdom. We're part of the kingdom of Christ. And yet we easily become <clears throat> sidetracked, maybe in our planning. Maybe we kind of lose focus. Uh, we've become sidetracked by the news. There's a barrage of it coming and going. The bad events, the much less than ideal that we see in our daily lives uh, with people we meet. And so it makes us think again, brings up the question to me again, what? what who am I and why am I here? And, and what should I be doing? <clears throat> Sorry, my voice just feels on the edge this morning. Um, the kingdom of Jesus. I'd like to look at John 18.33 as an opening passage. And uh, I'm going to ask our superintendent to close the service in this morning. I'd like to look at John 18.33. Read through verse 37. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again. And this is leading up to the crucifixion. Called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of, the wor of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered, delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? 
Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause have I come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And so then elaborating on what I was speaking of before, you know, there's the day now where we're in the day now where so many things seem to, to be going wrong. We have a ballooning national deficit that weakens our country on every level, and it threatens even our ability, if we look at it closely, to provide for our own. And we seem to be, as a nation, living on a very fragile shelf economically. And we have witness, we have and we're witnessing moral deterioration within our country going back to the hippie revolution and the fast and that was also fast. This was fast tracked by Hollywood's agenda of glamour, deceit, and violence. All of this being piped into our living rooms, the nation's living rooms, hopefully not ours. And it's taking a toll on our country. We can see that. It's taking a toll on our country. There's sociologists that say, no, it's not. They say, you know, what you see and what you observe and hear doesn't make a difference in behavior, but that's blatantly wrong. That's blatantly a lie. Because what we see and what we hear, what we take in, what we feed on will definitely affect our behavior. And it is. And they can't eventually control it by simply putting uh, laws into place. Mass killings are on the rise, either by personal agenda or political agenda. You know, we, we have heard a lot about these mass killings recently with political agenda, but let's not forget there's been a lot of mass killings with just personal agenda, people just living out violence that they've taken in. And we've had our own court approve the Holocaust of unborn babies going on for years now. The Holocaust of unborn babies, abortions. You know, you think about it, and I don't know all the ins and outs of this, but it costs less than $500 for a lady to go to Planned Parenthood and have an abortion. And it costs upwards of $30,000 for a couple to adopt a baby that an unwed or, or that a mother doesn't want. Does that make sense? Does that show a skewered um, system, a skewered priority um, of the American people or of, of somewhere, somehow or other in our, in our judicial system or in our society? It, it has to. It shows, you know, where we're at. And then again, and I'm not trying to to turn this morning into a, a feel-bad fest, but I just, you know, these are things that we're really living, a time we're really living in. We're in this time. And how do we relate to this? You know, to top all of this off, we have verifiable reports of Planned Parenthood here recently actually profiteering from baby parts. And I've been, it's been interesting to me, I've been reading, doing quite a bit of reading about World War II here recently. 
It's always fascinated, World War II has always fascinated me. I don't pretend to know the whole historical structure there. I'm more of an anthropologist by nature. I, I more like to become involved in people's lives and periods and um, in periods of history and, and try to understand why they did things as they did and so forth. But it, of course, the historical structure all lends itself to that. But um, one thing I'm, I'm impressed with is that how that denigration can take, take uh, <clears throat> place so rapidly in a society. Um, you know, from going from having a, a man wanting to purge his country and to push people out of his country unwanted, as the Jews, Hitler being that man, the Jews, to, you know, putting them into the final solution, into the, to the concentra uh, concentration camps and then burning them. And, and in Deuteronomy, it talks about, it talks about, speaks to our day, I believe. Deuteronomy 12.31, Moses is giving a report, a final report to the children of Israel there. And he's, he's gone through their, their history back into Egypt all the way forwards. Moses is about to leave the scene here and he really wants to impress on the children of Israel that you know, if you do what is right, God will bless you. And if you do what is wrong, there will certainly be a curse. God will not, uh, God will not let that escape his attention. You'll be pushed out of the land. And in Deuteronomy 12.31, he says this, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way he's talking about, in the way that the heathens do, for every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. And I say, yes, you know, our president was correct when he said our, our, our country is no longer a Christian nation. We've become a completely heathen nation in some respects. There is hope. There is still Christianity. There is even reading about World War II and I was impressed there how that when the the Germans were being were facing imminent defeat, uh, they did not want to get caught on the Russian side. They did not want to face defeat on the Russian side. They wanted to face it on the American side, and that was because there was an element of Christianity even in the soldiers. You know, when they were there taking lives, even then they had a. They had a different approach at soldier, soldiering than what the, the Russians did. And um, the, the ones that were released, the, the Jews released from concentration camps on the American side were treated very well. I read one story of a young man who, you know, he was out. They were, they were being forced to, from Dachau, that concentration camp um, that was the first one and also where they had been gathered back to again in 1944 and 45. And they were being pushed to go to, towards the state of Bavaria to, to build another last fortress to meet the, the Allies. And uh, in the meantime, they, the Americans were moving in from the west and the Russians were coming in from the east. And, um, and they were overrunning the country quickly. Um, Russians were right coming into East Berlin. And, um, of course, this young man who was a Jew uh, didn't know what all was taking place. 
they were straggling along, being pushed through snow, very little, if nothing to eat most of the time. And one, and uh, people were falling. The Germans would turn the dogs on the people that fell and just would kill, the dogs would kill them. And uh, one morning, and they were sleeping out in the snow in the weather, the inclement weather. One morning, these or these uh, these Jews woke up from all different walks of life and noticed that that um, the, the soldiers were gone, nowhere around. And uh, this one young man, Mannheim, that it was talking about, said he ran out. He ran out and he saw a civilian. Uh, a dead civilian and his horse was dead there too, casualty of war, quickly cut up the horse, cut some meat off the horse and found found a knife and a lighter in this in this uh in this civilian's dead civilian's um, pockets and he started up a little fire and, and started brewing horse meat or making a little stew there. And all of a sudden he heard some some uh, machinery come in and looked up and there came a Jeep. And it was his first encounter with an American, an Asian American, a Japanese American. And uh, he was he was shocked. He was ready to. He thought, well, he's lived through all of this, and now he's going to be killed. And uh, this this Asian American looks down at him and says, "Son," comes over to him, watches him making his stew, and uh, and this Jew was able to talk English, and so he chatted with him a bit, and uh, he said, "Son, you're safe now." And and this young man was like, you know, he just he couldn't believe it. He, well, you know, what's going on? And he said, "You're safe now." And he waited until he had finished his stew, just stood there and, and watched him, and and also helped gather up other people around, and um, and then gathered him, took him back to the their camp where they fed him some real good healthy stew again. Um, but you know that that was definitely a different a different response than the than the Jews had and those that were held in concentration camps had from the Russians. And I'm not saying this as being partisan. I'm just saying this: it's the Christian influence, even in our uh, that's that's founded into our country and and, and that bleeds out into society that that makes that response so different from the others that were taken up and transported into Siberia after the war, others of the, of the, those found in concentration camps. I hadn't planned to go that far into that story, but, you know, it's good for us to know that living our lives right and, and speaking in other people's lives does make a difference, even if it doesn't maybe turn people um, into what we would like to see them or where we would feel like the Lord wants them. Okay, so now, back to here again. We're, as American people, we're being, election season's coming up real soon. And we have a pretty long, colorful line of of men and and women on one side, and we have a less long and less colorful line of a man and a woman on the other side. And each, all of these candidates are putting forth their uh, resumes, their strengths, their abilities. They want to lead the nation. And uh, they're going about this by undermining their can- the other candidates' strengths and, and exploiting the other candidates' weaknesses and, and putting you know the, their best foot forward. And according 
to plan next spring we'll have a new slate of Republican and, and uh, Democratic uh, leaders to choose from. And according to plan, by next November there'll be a new president and he'll be presiding or starting his own cabinet and getting it ready to preside over the most powerful government in the world, as what is known the most powerful government in the world, making him the most powerful man, possibly the most powerful man in the world, arguably so. So I'm asking the question now, when you think about all of this, if you were able to make a king or a president, what would that, what would that king or president look like? Would it look like the most powerful person in the world? You know, some settle for less and make kings of things. Other people or celebrities or ambitions or, or even addictions. You know, they'll bow down and subject themselves to, to their addictions or their ambitions and make enormous sacrifice for, for many different things, for things less than the most powerful man in the world. Jeremiah addressed those that settle for worshiping inanimate objects, things made by their own hands. But here you have the possibility of actually adulating the most powerful person in the world as king or as president. Wouldn't that seem like a good choice? I mean, to be sure, a president or a president doesn't have the constitutional powers of a monarch or a king, but they're again, you know, very powerful. Well, this morning I'm glad I'm not faced with that being my only choice. I'm looking for a king. I'm looking for something greater, something better. And I'm glad God has allowed me to live in this country. You know, people are looking for a person that can bring forth greatness to the nation, that can bring forth financial proper, prosperity to their own lives. Someone that will keep them safe and someone that will promise to keep their taxes down. <clears throat> and no doubt all of the above are delightful. And if that's all you want or we want, to be left alone to pursue our own happiness and prosperity, you know, if our lives are actually like the chickens, which is basically input, putting the food in, output, laying the egg, and then cuphut, sizzling on the grill, then that's a pretty good answer. You know, we're happy for a king that will just make us happy. But if our lives have further purpose, such as eternal purpose, then we want a different kind of king. If we go back to our and I consider our Judeo history, we'd recall the, the following record. Here were people under bondage that were chafing at the heathenism surrounding them. They had expectation, great expectation, expectation of a coming Messiah that would change all their surroundings and establish an earthly kingdom where all would be well. And one of these men, a Pharisee, in Luke seventeen twenty, 
He asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would come. Jesus answered him, The kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. And in a way I could see Jesus' answer being a disappointment to the Pharisee. You know, that's not exactly what I don't think he was looking for or what I'm often looking for. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within me, is within you. And that means that that calls for an ownership on our part in a different way. Jesus used a different method than earthly kingdoms. In earthly kingdoms, we see continents. We see countries within continents. We see boundaries and borders. Loyalties established within or for the country than even within the country, different sets of loyalties within the country, different parties. And Jesus says, see, the kingdom of God is within you. He didn't say, see, the kingdom of God is going to be over here or over here. He said, it's within you. You know, the Pharisee may have been thinking of of this prophecy in in Isaiah 9 when he asked the the question, you know, where or when is this kingdom going to come? Isaiah 9, verse 6, and two very beautiful prophetic verses. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from time, from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord will, of hosts will perform this. <clears throat> and I'd like to focus, there's so many beautiful descriptions here. The government will be on his shoulder of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And when it says no end, I don't think it necessarily just means in time, but also I think it means in our space that the humans have to occupy. There will be no end. It won't be within these established borders here. There will be no end. It will circumference the earth. It will envelop the earth in the hearts of who? In the hearts of people that take Christ in as their Lord and Master, take His kingdom in and franchise themselves to Christ in His kingdom. But I'd like to look a little more at the King and what the King says about Himself, the King Jesus. He makes three statements in John 18. He says His kingdom is not of this world. It's not of this world. In other words, he's not looking to make a state. But this is Jesus' state. It's not of this world. He's not setting up boundaries. He was born to be king. And that's not another king. That's not another peer 
to other kings. He was born to be king of kings. And he came to bear witness to the truth. And that truth is what? That is opposite from everything that is evil. Truth is what leads us to God, to our Creator, brings us back to where we're supposed to be. As was read this morning in Revelations, he says he is Alpha and Omega. He asserts this four times in the book of Revelations. Alpha being the first letter of the Greek alphabet and Omega the last. The beginning and the end. The first and the last. He is Genesis to Revelations and all in between. He is Creator and He's Finisher. That's Jesus, our King. He is in full control of the unseen, the elements, and life. In 1 Corinthians 15.24, says this, Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father, and He puts an end to all rule and authority and power. So at some point or other, all rule, authority, and power that we see, these boundaries that we see set upon this earth are going to come to an end, and the king will assert his control even there. For he must reign till he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. There are men, dictators and despots, who have held seeming absolute control over their kingdom. Uh, One is still going on today. There are more than one. However, in the end, their reign is or will be limited by death. They can't control that. They can control their subjects, but they can't control the elements. They can't control an earthquake or tame a tornado or fight off a hurricane. They can't do that. Um, Jesus can. And Jesus says... The last enemy to destroy will be death. In Hitler's Germany, you know, it seemed like he exercised complete control over the lives of those he deemed unfit of his third rate or of his third empire. And there came a time when this man who had such a demonic grip over the lives of others succumbed to the same demonic power that had aided him in his ruthless tyranny. Like I said, the Americans, they were quickly advancing from the west. The Russians were step by step making their way into the heart of Berlin from the east with much loss, much casualty there. Hitler, in the meantime, was in his his, uh, bunker with Eva, his mistress, who he married just, just shortly before the end of the war, a few days. And he was trying to keep control of the situation, do the best he could, damage control probably mostly. His generals were no, some of his generals were no longer listening to him. And uh, he couldn't bear the thought of being taken prisoner. And so with such imminent defeat looming, he took his own life and the life of his newly married wife, Eva. And the power of death had, that he had asserted finally took him. Those who kill by the sword will die by the sword, Jesus says. <clears throat> Hitler's bodyguard and his chauffeur and staff then took the bodies of Hitler and Eva, drenched them in diesel, and attempted a crude cremation of them so the Russians couldn't abuse their dead bodies. 
what Hitler didn't reckon is that death is not simply the ceasing of physical bodies or the ceasing or the or the destruction of the physical body. But it's much more than that. It's the power of evil that seeks to utterly destroy all that God has created both in body and in soul. You know, Hitler thought he was in control even unto the end. He benevolently handed out poison pills to his loyal staff so they could easily kill themselves, gracefully kill themselves, he said. And in fact, one of his chief staff who was in control of the concentration camps killed himself, his wife, and had a physician poison all six of their young children, ranging from 2 to 14, or 2 to 12, I believe. You know, what a pitiful way to end. What a pitiful way to die. You know, this death that they had been using to their own advantage came and took them. The control they assumed theirs was in fact simply a one-way ticket through the gates of physical death into the eternal holocaust where the control of destiny endowed unto them by their Creator would be forever removed. And a somewhat scary thought about Hitler is that to those of his staff, he was seen as a benevolent, rational, and even a kind fatherly figure. And you can only conclude when you read about Hitler that he could have been just another great leader in history instead of a tyrant. In his pursuit of cleansing Germany, he chose one race above another. He rejected the other races and even pulled Lutheran Christianity into serving his schemes, which I believe were demonic schemes, even much larger than Hitler himself. And to me, it's scary to think that Christians can become so enfranchised with the world and with earthly kings that they will abandon the will of the King of Kings and compliantly become the servants of death to their fellow men. And I think that we need to remember that in our day, in our age, as we look around us and look at the political environment we're in. It's a scary thought to think that Christians can become so bought into their earthly king, their earthly society they're part of, that they will abandon the King of Kings, Jesus, and compliantly become the servants of death on their fellow men. Contrast that with Jesus. He came as a servant. March 10, um, <clears throat> sorry, not March. Mark 10.45 says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. You know, in the same way God sends the rain on the just and on the unjust, Jesus served the just and the unjust. The rich, the poor, the proud, and the humble, He served them all. The Jews and all the rest of humanity He served. He poured out His grace and His mercy on all of us freely. And that above characteristic is not really typical of the kings of this earth or even our presidents. Mostly earthly leaders 
tend to look out for their for their own interests and for their own interest groups that support them. And I'm sad to say that I believe that's happening today, even at the cost of the innocent. Even at the cost of the massacre of babies and the profiteering of their harvested body parts, this happens. And it's often done in the name of goodness. Such as state organizations, state-sponsored organizations saying they're about helping people, helping mothers, but actually not doing so. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. He will never mislead. He will always show his true intent as the king of, uh, or unlike the kings of the earth. And when I look at the little ones and think about that in our own society, Jesus loved the little ones. Mark 10.19 talks about this. Jesus there teaching. He's busy, has a lot going on. And then these mothers, maybe some fathers too, I hope, brought little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples, they rebuked those who brought them to him. And you can boo now if you want to. You know, the disciples, they rebuked those that brought those little children to him. And Jesus saw it. He was greatly displeased. Now you may cheer. And uh, he said, let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to say, assuredly I say to you, to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. All of Jesus' actions and his teachings were calculated to bring security and peace to the lives of children and the innocents. You know, from the if you go from his teaching on the fidelity in marriage and and on into his teaching on not offending these little ones. Jesus is always about loving and protecting the most important asset of humanity that and, and that humanity could possibly be built, blessed with. He's about protecting and, and bringing value to these little ones. In Luke 17.1, he says, it would be better for a millstone would be hanged about his neck than that he should offend one of these little ones. You know, in Hitler's era, I believe these little ones could be accurately described as those innocent Jews or the gypsies or others that were caught up in the war machine. Today, I think it could be accurately described as the Holocaust of unborn babies. It could also be, I think, accurately described as the refugees caught in the crossfire of, of rulers in the Middle East. And maybe it could also apply to those people, even us, who worry or are scared or are fearful about the little ones um, coming into our country from other nations oppressed, refugees that would wish to find a home here, a new life here. Our king is not fearful. Jesus is not fearful. Reading about Hitler and his nemesis, Stalin, you know, I'm impressed how they lived in constant fear. 
And because of this fear, many, many thousand people died. Hitler was, there was a, <clears throat> an attempted assassination against Hitler, which he was, I don't know if he was even wounded from. But because of that, they estimated at least 5,000 people died. People surrounding him, cabinet, their families, and on out. Fear just ruled his life. And the life of Stalin, which they estimate maybe a, a estimate of maybe 20,000 people died during his rule of different causes related to him and his policies. But God's not like that. He's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, thanks be to our King, our Savior, whose spirit of power and of love and of sound mind is unaffected by evil and death. And through his death, he continues to give victory to us over death. And he continues to save many, many thousands past, <clears throat> present, future, who call on his name. You know, I believe our king would have us focus on love in a sound mind and not on fear. Evil design confronted by evil method is not an effective way of, of prom promoting the kingdom of Christ. Evil design confronted by evil method is not an a productive or effective way of promoting the kingdom of Christ. And I'm glad that God didn't give us a spirit of fear, but of, of love and of power and of a sound mind. Again, Jesus' kingdom is clearly one that supersedes earthly dominion. He didn't grasp for earthly power. Going back to his early ministry, or before he started his early ministry, the devil made the preposterous offer to him that if he would bow, if Jesus would bow before him, he would deliver to him the kingdoms of the world. <clears throat> they would be his. And Jesus, of course, didn't bow. I don't know how much power the devil really thought he had. His offering to share his power with Christ seems outrageous, crazy. As it says in 1 Corinthians, all these earthly dominions will be brought under the feet of Christ, and every knee will bow. So why would have Christ even thought about bowing there? Maybe it would have you know, saved him the cross. But Jesus wasn't afraid. He wasn't fearful. He wasn't fearful at least to the point of, of bowing. And sometimes we'll be fearful too. And we need to be courageous because of find our courage in Christ and in His example. And then I want to do a little bit of contrast here yet in closing. Contrast the kingdom of God with the kingdoms of this earth. Jesus in Luke 12.32 says, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And the question then comes up of what kingdom does the Father wish to give us? And we'd have to see that in its context and I'm not, I don't want to... Uh, Go back and look at that, but this, what I'm going to share here, brings that into context as well. 
Romans 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So this is the kingdom that God wants to give us. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Let us therefore pursue the things which make for peace and the things which by one may edify another. Galatians 5.19 talks contrast again. The works of evil and the works of Jesus contrast them with the works of Jesus. The works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies. The list goes on and on. It's really tough. And I know that none of us would want to be around people like that. Drunkenness. It says, those who practice such will not inherit the kingdom of God. So those are the works of the flesh. People that exhibit these works, we wouldn't want to be around. But the fruit of the Spirit, the kingdom that God wants to give to us is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Who wouldn't want to be around people like that? And that's the kingdom that God wants to give us. <clears throat> First Corinthians 4, 4.20 says, For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. It's not in self-assumption and self-promotion, but it's in power, in the power of His own Son. And then just a couple of verses out of Paul's address to the Athenians at Areopagus. Verse Acts 17.24 God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, and he doesn't bound even by nations, nor is he worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And look at this in 26. And he's made from one blood every nation of men. So we're all of the same blood, us human beings, all of the same blood. To dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, but he's not bound by that. So that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live, in Christ we live, we move and have our being. As some of your own poets have also said, for we are his offspring. And he says he has appointed a day which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man who has ordained our King, Jesus. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And that's the King we serve this morning, the King of Kings. Because it's only the King of Kings who has power over death. And that King of Kings is King over all that's happening, all that we see, all the ills and so forth that we think about maybe in contrast when we hear the bells ringing on Christmas Day. He's in control. And, you know, how do we respond to that? How do we take that in? I think it's by simply focusing on or the realization that it's in us that he's setting up that kingdom 
It's in me and it's in you. And he wants us to live that each and every day and not focus, not be overcome with the thought of, of uh, all the evils. He'll take care of those. We can't. But he'll take care of those in his own good time. He has that in control. And I thank God that, that I can serve him, the King of, of Kings. I've lost you.